Right now, the very idea of imagining the future might feel strange, when the world is changing in ways we barely even understand, and we're struggling to make sense of the present. In this episode, we ask the question, is a safe and just future for all still possible, and what will it take to imagine and enact this kind of future? My name is Andrew Mary, and today I'm joined by two people who spend much of their time thinking about this question. My colleague Gary Peterson from the Stockholm Resilience Centre, and Laura Pereira from the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development at Utrecht University. Both have pushed hard for global environmental governance structures, such as the United Nations, to use creative and imaginative scenario approaches as part of their policy development. Welcome to Rethink Talks. So welcome everyone to this latest episode of Rethink Talks. It's my great pleasure today to uh, introduce my guests, who together we're going to be sort of answering this question, is a safe and just future for all still possible? And what might it take to imagine and enact that kind of future or those kinds of futures? So first I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Gary Peterson, who's joining us uh, digitally on Zoom today. Uh, Welcome Gary. Uh, And Laura Pereira. Uh, And Laura is joining us from the uh, Copernicus Institute for Sustainable Development at Utrecht University. And Gary Peterson is a colleague here at the Stockholm Resilience Centre. So welcome both. So I'd like to start off with uh, you guys sort of saying something that you think has been kind of surprising or interesting in connection to uh, the COVID-19 situation and your work on thinking and writing about the future. Um, so we'll start with, with you, Gary, if you have any initial reflections on that question. Okay, I, I have uh, maybe two thoughts. One, one is that I've actually been kind of surprisingly disappointed mm. by the simplicity of the way that most of the media and a lot of public discussion has been around COVID, keeping of treating like numbers as facts rather than estimates. And this uh, kind of very naive comparisons between countries people should know better. So that's inside science. And the second one I think that's been interesting is that how COVID has sort of promoted uh, I don't know, rebellions or social movements, both like I think with the most media attention, Black Lives Matter in the United States, and uh, also the, the, the issue in Be- Belarus and in, and in uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, and so I, I think that's been kind of interesting about this pandemic causing people to be uh, locked home and not doing their normal job has given the space for uh, social movements to organize and protest against uh, inequality and unfairness in societies. Laura, your thoughts? So I think just picking up on what Gary was saying around this evolution of social, social movements and a lot of pushback on the inequalities that the COVID-19 moment has made so stark within the world. I think that that's been a really, not surprising, but an interesting um, phenomenon that's emerged. And I think when we talk about transformations, for example, we talk about um, crisis moments sort of opening up opportunities or different pathways um, towards different futures. And I think that what we're seeing now in 2020 is exactly that moment of opening up a space for potential reconfiguration. I do think that there's also caution that needs to be um, 
put into the discussion. I think a lot of the sustainability movements uh, have been using this time to to really capture, look, we can not fly so often. We can actually stay at home um, and, and look at the, uh, the wildlife returning to our cities and look how beautiful Venice is at the moment. Um, so I think those are important learnings, but I think at the same time, realizing the massive social inequalities that also come with these kinds of moments, access to healthcare, access to food has been absolutely critical within the South African context, um, that we need to have a bit more of a cautious conversation about how we use these moments of crisis. But I think that there's also a lot to be said around preparing ourselves for when these moments do occur that we're then able to navigate in a direction that um, that we think is more is more desirable um, or, or sustainable or uh, or positive great thank you Laura and I'll get you both to say something about the relationship between the present and imagining or envisioning the future because I mean you know one could think that people might say well it's a bit luxurious or self-indulgent to be spending time like thinking about the future when there's so many things that we have to deal with right now and if we don't really deal with this present moment of crisis uh, you know how will that relate to our future so I wonder if if Gary uh, you can start by saying something a little bit more about the this relationship yeah but, but I think that, that that would be both, I think, a bit misleading and, and kind of naive about how mm-hmm. decisions work. So if, sure. if you're trying to respond to coronavirus right now, it's going to be based on thoughts about the future, the Indeed. course of the virus, the course of the economy, what's going to happen for, for the immediate next few months mm-hmm. is based on models and beliefs and stories about the future. And then if you're doing those things, you also have to worry about all the other things that are going on whether it's uh, about the future of businesses, children in school, people's health, the elderly, social inequality, or longer term issues like climate change or biodiversity loss. You need to, you're, everyone's always bringing the, the future into their present decision-making, whether they're explicitly aware of it or not. Indeed. So I think uh, when we're doing big things and there's big social disruption, there's big, changes in what governments are doing or how they're spending money. It's actually the absolute critical time to, to think about the future. And Absolutely. it's hopefully you can utilize work that people have done already to think about the future and, and focus on the critical surprises or uncertainties that you need to resolve and be aware that you don't know what's going to happen and pl- prepare for that, those unexpected events, both being prepared to learn and being robust to surprise. So just picking up what what Gary was saying there, I completely agree with him. And I think that there are two ways that we can can look about this idea of using the future. The first comes from a a pretty well-established concept of anticipatory governance, which is in essence about using the future to make better decisions in the present. And this has been a response about this shift towards very short-term thinking that we tend to have now, whether it's short-term election cycles or um, using the idea of discount rates and economics to to sort of trade off or, around the long term, particularly around concerns like climate change. And it's about being able to bring longer-term thinking into the decisions that we're making now because we know they're going to have an effect. So that's one component. I think the second component is just about the ideas of telling stories As humans, we tell each other stories, um, whether it's about the past, but quite often it's also about the future because you can get a richness of detail and context that makes you think. Um, And Alex Evans has this this great quote about how um, stories actually shape our futures and our ways of thinking. And I think that it's really 
important to emphasize how powerful stories can actually be to shape our decisions in the present and what we actually land up doing now. So picking, and if, sorry, Gary, uh, if I could just add something onto that, Andrew, and I think one of the important things about actually explicitly thinking about the future stories mm -hmm. is that uh, these stories we tell about the futures can be pathological and trap us in very bad situations if we don't think about them a bit critically. And this can be that stories like, oh, we're all in it together when research and lots of evidence from science repeatedly again and again shows that the poor and marginalized are much more affected by disasters than the, the wealthy. And, and, uh, and, but, but with things like responding to disasters, if you watch disaster movies, mm -hmm. you would often get the idea there's some disaster, there's heroes, and everyone else is rampaging zombies that are trying to get them. But research and experience of disasters showing if actually people are, behave much better during disasters than they normally do during normal times, They're actually more cooperative and more helpful. So these stories that are widespread in the popular media about like people fending for themselves and lone heroes and fighting rampaging mobs don't actually match reality and trying to tell stories that better match what actually happens with disasters and what actually happens in the future can lead to actually much more uh, effective responses and recovery from disasters. So that's not disagreeing with Laura, but saying to explicitly think about these stories is usually very useful and to try and think about what are multiple stories that people are telling and how can we reflect and improve them. Great. And I know that there's kind of a larger narrative of people like yeah, explicitly questioning the stories we, we do tell ourselves. I know Cory Doctorow uh, just wrote a piece about the different kind of dystopian futures. And, and, you know, he's a social activist and a science fiction author, and he really kind of points this out, that if these are the only stories we tell ourselves, like how can we kind of find a, another, you know, way forward? And, I mean, I know that you guys, like not only do you make that explicit point, but you also actively work with trying to sort of imagine and envisage more sort of positive, more sustainable, you know, just futures. Like that's what you are explicitly focused on. Um, before I get you guys to talk a little bit more about that work, one specific example which I'd like to kind of um, connect to is that both of you have engaged with the uh, intergovernmental science policy platform on biodiversity and ecosystem services, working within the scenarios and models group. So maybe, Laura, if you can start to sort of give a little bit of context uh, for that work, and then uh, Gary will then switch over to you to sort of jump in a little bit more about what that looks like and, and, and how you've been doing, creating those new kinds of exciting, positive stories. Sure thing. Um, so IPES. Uh, came up with a methodological assessment uh, in 2016, which was on scenarios and models. And Gary was actually a part of that group and can talk a bit more about what the actual findings there. But in essence, going forward um, as a then expert group and now as a task force associated with EPES, there was a realization that particularly at the global le level, there was a lack of futures work, call it scenarios, visions, um, uh, even models uh, that really put nature at the center or that focused on nature. Um, so we have quite a lot of stories around climate change, for example, the, the SSPs that the IPCC uses, um, but they don't actually explicitly have, have nature and in particular people's relationship to nature uh, and the diversity that that actually brings with it. Um, those are seriously lacking. And so we embarked on this pretty ambitious project to to realize a scenario process whereby we could 
combine a lot of bottom-up stories from different places around the world, um, recognizing these different um, positive relationships uh, that people actually have with nature. So whether it's um, what we've called nature for society, which is very instrumental, a lot of, you know, we need to get our food from nature. Mm -hmm. Um, What we've called nature for nature is a very um, intrinsic idea of of nature just needing to exist in its own right, sort of sort of almost separate from humans. And then this other component that's been largely absent, um, specifically within the scientific context of uh, referring to nature as culture, where there's not even a separation between people and nature. And all of those are positive or desirable. Um, so we developed this, this triangle heuristic um, mm-hmm. from which you've actually tried to galvanize a lot of the research community and also practitioners to use this to to work with um, scenario generation in the communities that we can hopefully build up into a much more um, contextually nuanced idea of a, of global scenarios uh, for for nature. Um, so that was the process we embarked on, working quite closely with modelers. And and I think that kind of what's at the core there and what the difficulty really has been, and we're, we're iterating this, we haven't sort of solved the problem, is really around this idea of plurality and that in different places and in different times, we prioritize different kinds of relationships uh, with nature. And that is something important to be able to get into the stories that we tell. Um, it's also very important for so navigating the kinds of decisions or interventions that we want to put in place now. When people have been looking at what's happening to nature, I think it's no surprise to anyone that scientists think it's bad and they think it's been bad for a long time. I also worked on the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment that came out in 2005 that said very much the same thing of the IPES Global Assessment, that we're heading on a very bad trajectory for people and nature. And it needs really transformative change to get off of this, uh, basically eroding the web of life to something where people can restore and be stewards of the of the living world. And there's actually a complete lack of pathways to get there. So most of the work that people have done has been more documenting decline or talking about how we could decline less slowly rather than, well, what could, how could we move towards a future that we actually want rather than one that's less bad. And so that's something that we got the charge for of trying to develop these more positive scenarios. But with that, as Laura was saying, comes to saying, well, what does positive mean? And actually there's a lot of agreement along that of like not the trajectory we're on, but we really recognize we have to have this plurality in there. But I think this looking for not just slowing, but reversing the damage to nature and the support that the living world gives to humanity is a really uh, challenging thing to do. And it's very different from what people have been doing around say climate, which has been, looking at what are the consequences of of current and future choices on the climate, not how do we move towards a desirable situation for people on the planet. So we've got a different task. And then the other challenge there, which immediately highlights diversity is unlike the atmosphere in which CO2 mixes very quickly in a couple of years, you release it in Borneo or in Stockholm, it doesn't matter after a few years, but for nature, for the living world, that matters. Do you cut down a tree at, uh, or a hectare in the north of Sweden or in the Philippines? It matters. It has a big difference on, on how it affects people and how it affects nature. So that diversity has to be captured in these types mm-hmm. of scenarios too. So that's a real big challenge. But fortunately, there's lots of work around the world of thinking about local futures that we can build on and connect to.
One of the things that I've reflected on in my own kind of work on the future is that people, it's very difficult to kind of communicate the idea of the radical potential implications of what is actually happening right now, right? Like, you know, people will read a scientific paper that says that, um, you know, uh, the Amazon is drying out or that, uh, you know, the the monsoon might be slowing down, but they don't, they find it extremely difficult to actually think about like what that uh, that might look like. And then in the same way, you know, if you change a lot of the kind of core social norms that people are expecting or a social movement is able to have a really unexpectedly powerful impact, that can also be something that people find extremely difficult mm-hmm. to uh, to get a handle on. And so I wonder if you guys can reflect a little bit on what kinds of tools and approaches are they for really trying to get this future's work to cut through. You know, people are exposed in the kind of rich media landscape where they're either in kind of escaping into uh you know film and and tv series or they're kind of stuck in a media bubble like how can we actually try to get these in the first instance these positive futures to kind of cut through and and be shared and engage with by a larger group of people uh gary maybe you feel ready to to respond Uh, yeah well uh laura and i both work on a project uh called seeds of the good anthropocene and that's basically about we're trying to look at possible seeds of better futures. And by seed, we mean something that actually exists in the world that some people think could grow up to develop a more sustainable cool. future. And one of the reasons we picked this idea of seeds is that these are things that exist in the world. So I think exactly as you're saying, that people often... Uh, are, don't even see the diversity of the present because mm. you don't see all the world and how you see things is based on what you've experienced in the past. And so people often lag behind in their perceptions about what's really going on in the world and to kind of identify these things that are marginal and make them better known can really uh, change people's thinking. Uh, and, and I think this is what you see when you often you move between countries or even between neighborhoods in the same country. Some people think some things are possible, impossible when they're already occurring and well-established, maybe a few uh, kilometers away. And so to, this awareness of the possibilities of things being different, I think doesn't just provide models for people to do things differently, but shows things can be different in many different ways and gives people the, the sort of inspiration of the hope to try and do things differently. And I think that's uh, something that's very useful is to kind of crack open this sort of entrenched accepted wisdom mm-hmm. and to get people to uh, look around them for opportunity. That doesn't mean it's gonna solve everything, but to see like, well, what could be different and how could we make space for these kinds of experiments? When it comes to actually making changes ourselves right now in our day-to-day lives to help steer us onto a trajectory that we personally find is more sustainable uh, or more desirable. That requires stories that tell us that we actually have that agency, that we can actually make that kind of change. And I think that's really important, again, to get a diversity of those stories um, accessible. And they can be everything from, I mean, like the work you've been doing on science fiction prototyping, um, being able to engage in in telling stories from different perspectives that actually show how change can be affected, that the kinds of radical transformations that that we want to see happen can actually be told in a story. Um, I think there's an important difference to realize that futures capacity is realizing that the stories that we tell, those aren't the futures that are actually going to happen, but 
by being able to tell them, we're able to make better, more informed decisions in the present. Uh, and I sort of keep on coming back to that idea. And I think so, for example, something that has been quite interesting in the science fiction world over the past 10 years or so, I was listening to a, a Cood Street podcast that um, was talking about how we were going through a moment of extremely dystopian stories about the future. Um, it was sort of doom and gloom, Mad Max kind of worlds that were emerging around us. And I think that that was sort of a story of um, sort of post 9-11, you know, the world was going into this kind of scary place, particularly with climate change. And that actually now you're starting to see stories with a hint of a bit more utopian angle to them. So sort of the work that Kim Stanley Robinson has been doing. Um, he's just got the new book, The Ministry of the Future. That's come out, which I'm very excited to read, hopefully soon. Um so, so there's, there's that angle, but then so writers like Nadia Korofor, who are using African futurism as a way to get different kinds of stories about the future out there, which actually have different protagonists, have different kinds of agents that are still able to affect change. And I think even the Black Panther um, sort of organization was giving a different kind of notion of who has agency to affect change and where it comes from. And I think that that diversity of stories will help us actually think about transformation in different kinds of ways. And storytelling about the future is really um, is a really good tool to be able to bring in other kinds of dynamics. So you see the work that uh, Margaret Atwood has done or Ursula Le Guin on sort of a very f radical feminist kind of ecology. You can bring that narrative into a story without forcing people to read sort of these underlying theories. And I think that they're really useful tools to be able to bring a, a wider audience along with you on a journey about how both really really dire or, or difficult stories about the future can emerge, but also what potential there is um, for us to be able to change those trajectories now. Thank you. Maybe just to add one thing, I think that as Laura was saying, and I think that in our work a bit, if you look at popular media, whether it's video games, movies, comic books, novels, mm. there's very little... Uh, kind of sustainable futures in those, where, where there's some kind of imagination of a future that is connected to today and a pathway of getting to there where there is a more, uh, you know, just, prosperous, rich in life world. And so I don't think everyone should do that, but I think right now we're very, very biased towards dystopian stories. And if people expect their future to be terrible, it doesn't help create a better future because people are going to act. They don't know how to act to create a better future. So I think it's, it's great to discuss and explore very uh, lots of different ways we could move towards different definitions of a positive future and then to try and act to make those better worlds possible, uh, not accept that we just need to slow the damage. There's a lot of cynicism about the ability for people to change their lives individually and this constant kind of pointing out that many of these issues are systematic, you know, systemic racism, uh, the fact that you have, a, you know, a large group of transnational corporations that have kind of a lock hold on the kind of global economic system. So from your kind of work on the futures, can you give some on, on the futures, on futures, can you give some reflections on how, uh, you mentioned anticipatory governance or this work you're doing in the future. How can that help us to kind of think differently about how we actually break 
some of these like systemic challenges and how do we move forward collectively into yeah. a better future? So basically, go ahead. So I was just going to say slightly facetiously that basically, how do we save the planet? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think that there's there's also again a caution here that telling stories about the future is not going to change everything, right? Uh, and that there are systemic and structural concerns that we do need to face. But I think. Similarly to, to racism, to, to sexism, to, um, to homophobia, until we actually describe it and have it recognized as a challenge, mm. it's impossible to engage with. Um, and I think that this is where telling stories, putting our cards on the table and actually reflecting a reality that we're seeing around inequalities, around um, the economic system that has captured us in a particular sort of way. Um, I think that that's where... The, the power of stories, the power about thinking about it could look different. Gary, any thoughts on that as we head towards the yeah. end? Uh, so so I, I think that it's uh, to reflect a little bit on history, even recent history can give you, show that not only that big changes are possible, but they happen all the time. And it's maybe a bit more that people don't see them when they do. And I, when people ask questions of this, I commonly talk about China. Because I think China, if you went to China in 1930, 1945, 1970, 1989, about what China would be like today, if you'd extrapolated from the past any of those times, you would have been incredibly wrong. People mostly were incredibly wrong. And China's had the, for all the things going on there, all the faults, it's had the, the largest movement of people out of poverty in the history of the world. Uh, and I think it's fair to say it's pretty much not really expected that, that China would develop for so much for so long by, by most people. So I think that's to think, look at these changes in the past and try to understand big changes in the past and think about how those could go in the future. And that's uh, say our colleague Per Olson and many other people have looked to try to understand how do transformations happen and we can try and think about how could that happen today and into the future. Uh, so I think that that's like one thing and then to go with that I think I mentioned our project Seeds of the Good Anthropocene and in my opinion uh, the American writer Rebecca Solman is sort of the patron saint of our program and she's written about hope in the dark and that hope isn't optimism but it's that the future is unknown and it's unwritten and we can help write it. We don't get to be, it doesn't get to be what we want, but we can work for the good and prepare for the bad. And these moments of change come, whether we're expecting them or not. And we should remember that this, the future isn't given because if we if think it's gonna, it's inevitable, there's no reason to act if for, for good or for bad. So we need to know that it's contingent and that gives our work meaning, but that we have to, work to make good things happen. And I think that's a fantastic place to leave the conversation. So I'd like to thank uh, both you, uh, Professor Gary Peterson uh, and uh, Dr. Laura Pereira for joining me here on this episode of Rethink Talks and a really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew.
You've been listening to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth, and don't forget to subscribe.